All right, well, we are in our series on Paul's letter to the Colossians. We're calling it Greater. And so today we're going to dive in, right? We're right in the middle of this series. And I just want to remind you a little bit of the context. Colossae was a town in western Turkey, part of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire covered a, a large number of different people groups, different cultures, different religions. And so one of the ways that they worked to keep unity between all these different cultures, all these different people, was to teach them to worship each other's gods, right? Don't be, don't be intolerant, don't be particular, just worship everybody's god. If somebody has a god and they live next to you, worship, hey, that's cool, worship with them. And so in this area, especially in western Turkey, there's lots of different people passing through. You had people coming through the Silk Road from Asia, you had people coming up from North Africa, you had Europeans coming through, and so it just had lots of different religions in this area, and so lots of different, uh, lots of different cultures and lots of different idols that people were worshiping. And so one of the ways that some of the more intellectually minded people tried to understand this was they tried to kind of combine all these different religions into a system that today we call Gnosticism. And it's this idea that all the different gods were spirits. And they were created by this ultimate supreme god. But we don't know him. He's too far away. He's too removed from us. But we can know these different spirits. And so you can be devoted to a certain spirit. But you can also learn from other spirits and other, uh, other gods that people are worshiping. And so in that context then, the Christians in Colossae were feeling a lot of pressure to conform to this, to accept all these different religions and to just view Jesus as one of many powerful spirits. And so Paul's friend is, he is the church planner there and he writes Paul and he says, hey, this is the issue we're facing. And so Paul writes the Colossians and he tells them a couple of things. He says, hey, I want you to grow healthy in your faith by knowing God's will and by knowing that Christ is greater than any other spirit, any other religion. That was our first three messages in the series, and so if you missed one of those, I encourage you to go back, listen online. But today, in our passage today, Paul begins to transition to something kind of a little different. Uh, he begins to tell the Colossians why he's suffering, why he's writing them a letter from a prison cell. See, most religions in the Roman Empire did not have a theology of suffering. They were prosperity gospels. If your God was real and your God was powerful and you had a good relationship with your God, you did everything you're supposed to, you, you prayed, you said all the right words in your prayer and you offered the sacrifices and you did good deeds, then you'd be blessed. Things would go well for you. Your God would take care of you. It was a business transaction. You do your part and your God does his part. But if you're suffering, if things aren't going well, then that shows that there's a problem, either a problem with your God or a problem with you. Either your God isn't real, or isn't powerful, or isn't trustworthy, or you haven't been faithful to your God somehow. You've disobeyed your God, and so you're being punished. And so in that context, Paul's sufferings were an embarrassment to the early Christians. Because here's their leader, this supposedly great apostle, right? Who, who supposedly has this intimate relationship with Christ, and yet he's poor, and he's sick, and he's constantly being beaten and thrown into prison. It just didn't seem like he was being blessed by God. And if he has this close relationship, things should be going well for him. It just it seemed more like he was being punished by Christ than being blessed. And so probably the Gnostic teachers in Colossae are using Paul's sufferings against him. They're probably saying that something is wrong with Paul's version of Christianity because all these problems are happening to him. Jesus isn't protecting him 
from suffering. And so they're telling the Colossian Christians, hey, Jesus doesn't want you to suffer like Paul. That's not his will for you. He wants you to be blessed and to be successful. If you'll just accept our Gnostic views about Jesus and you'll just accept our teachings about him and about other spirits, then you'll be blessed. You won't be persecuted anymore. You'll be accepted. And that was probably really tempting for the Colossians. And so Paul writes and he, he wants and he needs to give the Colossian Christians a theology of suffering. He needs to explain why he's suffering and why it's actually a good thing. So turn with me to Colossians chapter 1 verse 24. Paul says, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh, my physical body, what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Let's pause there. This is a hard passage. Two questions. First of all, why does Paul rejoice in his sufferings? That sounds normal to us. We're Christians, you know, we, we know the Christianese, right? Oh, yes, I'm suffering, but I rejoice in the Lord. Like, we, we're used to that kind of language. But early Christians were not. For, for people in the Roman Empire, suffering and rejoicing were an oxymoron. You don't do both of those things. And so for Paul to say that, hey, I'm rejoicing in my suffering, would have been pretty shocking to his original audience. But also, the second question, how does Paul fill up in his body, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the church. That sounds almost heretical, right? It sounds like Paul's saying Jesus' death wasn't sufficient to atone for sins, and so I have to suffer in addition to what Jesus suffered. That's kind of what it sounds like. And this is why we have to, when we read passages, verses of the Bible, we have to read them in context, right? If you've taken hermeneutics, uh, we had a class a year and a half ago, you got to read verses in the Bible in context. If you don't, if you take one verse out of context, you become a, a TV evangelist or, or you start a cult. Or, I, I'm just, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. You start a cult, you write a heretical book that's a bestseller. I don't know, but you do one of those things because it's easy. You take a verse out of context, you can, you can get all kinds of funky theology, but when we look in context, we see that's not what Paul's saying. If you remember last week, verses 21 through 23, you can glance over it. But last week we, we looked at that and we saw how Paul said, look, we've been alienated from God. We've been separated from God. We've become enemies of God in our minds. We have these sin glasses on that distort reality and it makes, look, it, makes it look like God is our enemy to us and it makes us want to fight against him. But Paul says, look, you've been reconciled to God by Christ's body through his death, and it's sufficient to save you if you continue in your faith. So Jesus died for your sins on the cross. That is sufficient to pay for all your sins. Jesus reached down. He pulled off those sin goggles. He revealed the gospel to you. And Paul says, if you continue in your faith, that is sufficient to save you. There's nothing more that has to happen. You don't have to suffer to be saved. You don't have to you know, do other stuff. You just have faith in Christ. He says, that is enough. And at the very end of that, verse 23, Paul says, this is my gospel. This is the gospel. This is what I preach. You're saved by God's grace, a free gift, through your faith in Jesus Christ alone. So with that in mind, let's keep reading. 24 again, and then we'll keep going. 
Paul says, Now I rejoice in what was suffered for you, and I fill up in my flesh, my body, what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed, it's, it's revealed to the saints. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So the first thing we see here is that Paul's sufferings displayed the sacrificial sufferings of Christ for the sake of evangelism. Paul's sufferings displayed the sacrificial sufferings of Christ for the sake of evangelism. God commissioned Paul to present the gospel. The gospel has been hidden from the Gentiles. They're not a part of the people of Israel. They didn't have the covenant that God made with the Israelites. They didn't, they didn't live in Palestine. They didn't live in Israel. They didn't see Jesus going around healing and teaching and doing miracles. They didn't see Jesus physically suffering for them and dying on the cross. They didn't see him rise from the dead. They, they've never heard the gospel. They're foreigners. They're Gentiles. And so Paul says, I come to them and I proclaim the gospel with my words, but I also display the gospel to them with my sufferings. So Christ's afflictions are not lacking in their atoning power. They are lacking in their physical display. I'll say it again. Christ's afflictions are not lacking in their atoning power, their ability to atone for sin, but they are lacking in their physical display. So Jesus' sufferings on the cross are sufficient to take the punishment for your sins. Jesus suffered and took your punishment. That is sufficient. You don't have to suffer to take the punishment for your own sins. Jesus did that. But most people throughout human history do not have the opportunity to physically watch Jesus suffer and die for their sins. Only a few people actually saw him suffering and dying for their sins. Most of us do not have that ability Jesus doesn't physically go to each person and say, hey, watch, I'm dying on the cross for your sins. That doesn't happen. And so therefore, Paul filled up that lack with his sufferings as Christ's ambassador. And so when people saw Paul suffering in order to bring the gospel to them, they saw a picture of how Jesus had suffered for them. When people saw Paul suffering in order to bring them the gospel they said this is a glimpse it's a picture of how Jesus suffered for me and it made the gospel real to them John Piper tells a story of a pastor he met from Africa at a church conference it was a a guy from the Maasai tribe and this guy told John the story of how he became a Christian he said that he had been he had been out on on a road and he met this Christian and the Christian told him the gospel and it was like, he said it was like a light just came on, and he just, he saw how the glory of Christ, he saw that it was real, it just, he was filled with joy, and so he ran back to his village, and he began knocking on everyone's door, telling them the gospel, and he was sure that everybody was going to respond the same way he did, but they didn't. In fact, the villagers got very angry, um, they, they grabbed him, and they began to beat him and whip him with a barbed wire cord. And they beat him until he was unconscious, and they threw him out of the village. Well, eventually he came, came to, 
And he figured, I must have said something wrong. Like, I must have not explained it right for them to react this way. So he goes back into the village and again begins to to explain the gospel. And again, they beat him until he goes unconscious and they throw him out of the village. A third time, he comes to, he goes back into the village. And this time, before he can even begin to share, they grab him and begin to beat him. And so as they're beating him, he's sharing the gospel with him. He's, he's trying to explain that, that Jesus suffered and died for their sins. And as he is losing consciousness, he sees the women in the tribe beginning to cry. And when he wakes up, he's lying in this bed and they're tending to him. And the whole village became Christian. Because they saw him suffering, living out the message that he was proclaiming to them. Another story, Oswald Sanders, who was a missionary who worked in India, tells a story of an Indian uh, evangelist who was traveling around, going to different villages, sharing about Christ. And one evening he came to a village. He'd had a long day, a lot of walking. He was tired. He came into this village uh, just before sunset and begins to share. The villagers say, we don't want to hear you. They kick him out. So he goes, he's exhausted. He falls asleep under a tree. When he wakes up, all these villagers, villagers are seated in front of him. And the head man of the village comes and he says, we came out while you were sleeping to look at you and we saw the blisters on your feet. And so we figured you must be a holy man because you're willing to to suffer to bring us this message. And so we're all here to listen to you. Jonathan, Joseph Tan, who was a, a pastor in Romania, who was persecuted and eventually exiled by the communists, said that the cross of Christ is for propitiation. Our cross is for propagation. So the cross of Christ propitiates, it satisfies God's wrath for sin. Our cross is what spreads that message. Let's keep going. Verse 28, Paul says, We proclaim him, Christ, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. So the second thing we see is that Paul's suffering showed the power of Christ. Paul's suffering showed the power of Christ. Paul says, I labor to disciple people. I labor to help them to grow and to mature in Christ. That's my goal. That's what I'm doing here. And the word labor, it has this idea of, wor- of struggling, of, of, of working really hard against obstacles. We know from Paul's letters and also from Acts that Paul often, Paul often had to fund himself in ministry, financially fund himself. And so the way that he would do that was by working as a tent maker. He would make tents. That was his trade by, um, by his family. And so while he was making tents in, in kind of the town marketplace, he would evangelize. He'd be sharing the gospel with people who came by. And then at night, anybody who was interested, he would meet with them and teach them. So he's he's working in the day, then in the evening he goes and begins to teach people and disciple them. And so he says in his letters that he often had to go without food and without sleep. Food, probably because he's poor, he's not making a ton of money selling his tents. And sleep because he's busy all his time, he's he's either working or he's discipling and teaching people, and so he's, he's sacrificially going without sleep. And Paul was not an eloquent speaker. He didn't have this charisma that captivated people. He, wasn't, he didn't have this big personality. In fact, his critics mocked him for being physically unimpressive. He didn't have the nicest clothes. 
the church fathers say that Paul was short and bald. So you got the short, bald guy, not, not real good looking. He, he's not this cool, hip, megachurch pastor. That's not Paul. He didn't have this powerful, attractive personality. And he had some sort of a physical ailment. We're not quite sure exactly what it is, but there seems to be some evidence that it was an eye problem. And if it was an eye problem, that would have been a big problem for Paul because in the ancient world, the eyes were considered the window to your soul. So if you had an eye problem, it showed that you had a soul problem. And so here we have this poor, overworked, exhausted evangelist who's not very attractive, not a great speaker, and who has a physical ailment that makes people feel uncomfortable around him and maybe even suspicious of him. Sounds like a pretty great resume for a church planner, right? I mean, this is the kind of guy we pick. Right? Dean evaluates church planners. I'm sure if Paul came in, he'd be like, man, you're, you're ready to go, dude. That's, these are all the criteria we look for. I mean, why, why would Jesus make Paul's life so hard? Why did he make him suffer like that? Why didn't Jesus help it, provide him with more money so that he could eat better and, and, and have better clothes and look nicer? Why didn't Jesus give him more helpers so he could get more rest? Why didn't he make Paul a better speaker and give him more, more charisma, make him a natural leader? Why didn't he heal Paul's illness? It was such an obstacle to him. Paul gives us the answer in 1 Corinthians 12, 7. He says, To keep me from becoming proud, there was given a thorn in my flesh, some sort of a physical issue, and a messenger of Satan to torment me. So Paul says, I have this physical problem. I know that intermediately it's coming from Satan. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When people saw Paul's labor, when they saw his sufferings, his weaknesses, The only explanation they could give for how he could be so fruitful and how he could keep persevering with joy was that Christ's energy was working powerfully through him to love and to serve them. And because of that, when people believed Paul's message, their faith did not rest on Paul. It didn't rest on his wisdom, didn't rest on his personal charisma. It rested on God and God's power. They knew that God was real because they saw God working powerfully through Paul. I know that we long to see more of God's power among us. And of course, we long to see miracles. I'd love to see more miracles. And I do believe they still happen. But I think one of the clearest ways that Christ shows his power is through people who are weak and suffering and unimportant and unimpressive. People who have nothing else to depend on except him because he gets all the credit for their fruitfulness and for their joy. Let's keep reading. Two, chapter 2, verse 1. I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and unified in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. 
in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Third point we see is that Paul's suffering showed the love and the comfort of Christ. The love and the comfort of Christ. Paul says, look, I want you to know how I'm struggling for you. Not so that you'll glorify me. Not so that you'll, you know, that you'll praise me. But so that you will be encouraged and unified in love. And you will know Jesus better. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. Just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is also for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. Paul's point is that he was able to comfort others in their sufferings because God had comforted him in his sufferings. His endurance through suffering and the lessons that he learned were able to encourage other people as they faced sufferings. He could assure them that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance produces character and character produces hope because he had experienced it himself. He had lived it. Those weren't just platitudes for him. It wasn't like one of those spiritual bumper stickers that he posted on Facebook. He lived it out. It had credibility coming from him. He could assure them that these light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And it carried weight coming from Paul. One of the great ironies for me is that when I travel overseas and I, I go and I meet missionaries and I meet uh, native Christians in other places, I'm going to encourage them. I'm going to help them, to serve them, but often I feel like they're more of an encouragement to me. Because when I hear stories of God's faithfulness to them, I think, man, if God is faithful to them through their sufferings, which are so much greater than the ones I face, I know God will be faithful to me. If God's able to be faithful to them, I know he's able to be faithful to me. And that's how Paul's audience felt with him. Finally, Paul's suffering showed the infinite value of Christ. When the Colossians looked at Paul, they didn't have to wonder if he was in it for the money or for the reputation. His perseverance showed that he wasn't following Christ for those reasons. In Philippians, Paul said, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. And Paul's sufferings showed that he meant it. You know, Louis Giglio calls suffering a megaphone. It, it trumpets out what you really believe. You can, say, you can say all the things that Paul said. You can say, yeah, Christ is so important to me. He's more important than anything else. I love him so much. But when suffering comes, it shows if you really believe that. And it trumpets it out. Because when you suffer, you're un believing friends your unbelieving co-workers they pay attention they watch they don't necessarily listen to you so much when everything's going fine but when things when, when you get that call that you have terminal cancer when your spouse just leaves you one day 
suddenly people pay attention. Suddenly they look at you. How will you respond now? How will this, this faith that you've been telling them about for all these years, how will it carry you now? When you have peace through cancer, when you have, when you have the grace and the forgiveness to be able to forgive and have mercy on those who hurt you, people notice because it's not natural. Paul's sufferings trumpeted out his belief that Christ is worth it. The church fathers used to say that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. By people dying, it made the church grow. We know that Jesus is worth all that we have. We know that intellectually. We know that he's the source of joy. We know that. But when we see someone willing to suffer and to give up everything for him, it reveals his value in a way that words just don't. And it motivates us to treasure him more deeply. So for application, a couple quick points. First, what counts as suffering for Christ? I think that's a question that we ask, right? If I get laid off from my job, or if I, if I have marital struggles, or if I'm sick, if I have conflict with somebody, a friend, someone in church, are those things suffering for Christ? Because I'm not being persecuted per se by the government. Uh, does that count? I like what John Piper here says. He says that all suffering that comes along the path of obedience to Jesus is suffering with and for Christ. In other words, if you are seeking to obey Christ, if to the best of your ability you're seeking to please and to honor him, any suffering that he allows to come into your life is suffering for him. The second point in application is count the cost. As you think about suffering, count the cost. How badly do you want to know Christ? How much is he worth to you? How much do you really want your unsaved family and friends to, to really understand how Christ suffered for them? How much do you want to be able to give wise comfort and encouragement to other Christians who are facing trials? It will require suffering on your part. You know, we've been emphasizing discipleship a lot lately, talking about how we, how through, how we meet together regularly, how we, how we study the scriptures together, we're accountable to each other, and that's all true but it's going to require suffering to really disciple someone, to suffer. And when they see you suffering, to say, Jesus is faithful to him, I know he'll be faithful to me. Do you want legitimacy as you counsel people and you share the gospel? Do you want them to pay attention? God may say to you, okay, I'll give you some opportunities to suffer while you sacrificially serve that person. I'll allow you to go through suffering so they can see that your faith is genuine and you can empathize with them in the sufferings that they're going through. Do you want to know Christ in a way that you've never known him, sensing his peace and his leading and, and having greater gifts of his spirits? The path is through suffering. Jesus may say, if you want to know me better, I'll let you go through some experiences that will strip away all these other things that you're depending on and will help you to depend only on me. And if you want more of my power, I will need to refine your character so that you don't become proud. But my third application point is that it's worth it. It's worth it. We may say, okay, God, maybe not. I don't want to suffer, but it's worth it. Philippians 1.29 says, it has been granted to you, literally it's been given to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but to suffer for him. I think that's one of the craziest verses in the Bible. It's an audacious statement that suffering is a gift from God. How can that be? Because it gives us more contentment with God and less with self, less with the world. 
People will view us as authentic in our faith because it's been clearly tried and it's been proved genuine. We'll be able to display the gospel of Christ's sufferings and our eternal joy will will be far, far, far greater than the cost. Let's pray. Father, it's hard to, well, it's easy to talk about sufferings. It's a lot harder to actually live it out, Lord. It's easy to talk about the value of suffering for Christ, but in the sufferings, it's so much harder to actually persevere. So, Lord, we ask for your grace, for your mercy. You know that we're weak, that we're limited. Lord, we can't make it through without you sustaining us. And so we ask for greater power, Lord, in our weakness to be able to persevere and to show the value of Christ and to show his sufferings to others so that they may believe. We thank you in the name of Jesus.